Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 to 38. This is the word of God. And Jesus went through throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send our laborers into his harvest. Father, we are grateful for your being the Lord of the harvest. And we would pray that today as we seek to understand your word better, to be motivated by it, as we yield ourselves to it, that you would be present. Your spirit would be present in each one here. Guide us in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. What do people do when the crowds swell? The crowds swell that are giving them attention, following them, interested in them? Well, if they're in sports, they keep playing. If they're a famous musician on the rise whose who's freight train is continuing to climb in a great trajectory, they keep singing. If there's a man or woman who's good at business deals, they keep the deals going. It's not hard to say that most of them keep doing what they're doing. And then there's an occasional time when we find somebody who's, whose crowds are swelling who does something very different. And Jesus is one of those people. And I want us to look today at what Jesus does when the crowds swell. I want to first of all look at the fact that we see what Jesus can do. In the first two verses of this passage here, in Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 and 36, Shadrach just read those. And we'll see that in this passage here, that Jesus is, uh, first of all, showing that he knows the problems people have. He's going to show us in these verses that he's motivated by compassion to do something about it. And then, just as wonderful, he's able to do something about it. He is able to deliver good news and able to heal, able to do wonderful things. Let me remind us what we've just read, and I want to work our way through seeing what Jesus can do before we transition into seeing what Jesus will now choose to do as he moves forward from here. It says in verse 35, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Well, I want to begin with the 
end of that little section to point out, first of all, Jesus' ability to look out on the crowds and make an accurate assessment of what he sees, that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You know, I picture maybe with my medical background, the image comes to mind more. That when Jesus is looking out over these crowds. He's, he's like a great triage nurse on a Friday night in the inner city in the ER. He looks out and he can see, oh, that older guy has arthritis, is getting to him. He's hobbling in, probably needs something for that hip. He looks out and sees the woman in the, the, the back of the room there whose face is drooped a bit from a stroke a few months back. He looks out and maybe sees someone even on the far end of the crowd beyond the rest, just like a good nurse would see someone who needs attention but is just a little fearful, like someone in Jesus' day with leprosy. Maybe he even sees a child that seems to be a bit unruly, but it's not because of a disobedient spirit. It's because the autism hasn't been diagnosed yet. Jesus has an ability and had an ability to look out over the crowds and, and surmise all the issues that were going on in those crowds before him. But not just like someone assessing physical issues. He's like a trained, wise counselor. The kind of counselor that, that looks out over a crowd and, and sees not just downcast eyes, but knows that those downcast eyes are the reflection of a downcast heart. A rocky marriage, maybe singleness that's gone on much longer than that person had hoped. Maybe it's just the weight of just a series of life's decisions, some bad choices on one of their parts. Some is just the cards life has dealt. And Jesus sees the strain. Strain in their eyes, strain in their hearts. But I would say to you what I think Jesus sees that is most important is not the physical issues, not even the emotional issues, but, but he sees when he looks out over this crowd people who are spiritually lost. And he draws attention to that. He draws attention as, as his disciples are around him and says, these are people who are helpless and harassed. These are people following me who are like sheep without a shepherd. It always seems like we have all these sheep descriptions and yet we're living in an age and among a people that don't know very much about sheep. Most of you, the closest you've gotten to a sheep is a sweater you were giving a few years back that you don't wear too often. But there's something about sheep I need to review with you. I know you've heard just a bunch of things already, but I want to remind you of something that I think, as, as I studied this, came uh, really just bright and clear to me. And, and this is it. That, that rams and ewes, they're, they're the big sheep, or the lambs, the little guys and gals, they have something across the board that is similar about them. Here's how one person describes it in terms of just their hopelessness, their helplessness, that they get their fleece often hopelessly tangled in bramble bushes, sometimes to the point where they can't even get away from the bush, that they're prone to drinking polluted water. They're 
prone to even rolling on their back, getting in the mud, and not being able to even rescue themselves like that pet turtle you had in third grade getting on its back and can't get, get its way, can't get back on its legs. But the thing about the sheep is they live a lifetime that way. They're not like a, like a lion. I looked it up, did a little research for you. A lion, these ferocious, you know, man-eating things, they, they start out unable to hunt, but by two to three months, mama lioness is teaching the cubs how to survive, teaching them how to hunt. And they grow up to be very independent, very fearful on the African plain to others. Think about an eagle soaring high, how they get there. It's not that they come out of the uh, hatch out of the egg and they're able to fly like that. But within a few weeks, you know what the parents begin to do? They bring some food home and, and rather than bringing it to the nest, they, they put it on a branch, forcing that little guy to get out of the nest and, and hop down and get that food off the nest, off the, off, off the branch. And after that's gotten them out of the nest for a while, they get to a place where they realize they need to learn how to fly. You know what they do? They just don't bring home as much food. Some of you with younger kids are learning a lesson here for those ones that want to linger after age 18. It's not the main point, but there's a lesson there for you. But anyway these eagles will begin to just bring home less food, and as a result, these little eaglets start getting hungry, and they begin to learn how to fly. But sheep spend a lifetime being helpless. Sheep spend a lifetime having very little ability to defend themselves. Sheep spend a lifetime that, if without a shepherd, will be harassed. And, and blown around by the elements. And without shepherding, all of us are harassed and helpless. You know, the description, you go back to the original wording of this, is really not just someone that has a little tough time on the playground, doesn't get picked, you know, early enough in kickball when their teams are being chosen. No, this is actually a description to be helpless and harassed is, is, is to be described as someone who is injured, injured by the elements, injured by those that would torment them, and, and push down, literally, to be injured and thrown down is kind of the image of what Jesus says when he says they are harassed and helpless. And what Jesus sees in any of us, apart from the great shepherd, beginning to be our shepherd, is people who are helpless and harassed. Prone, just like a, a sheep, to, to get tangled up in the brambled bushes of our choices are not so good choices. Prone to drinking in the polluted water that rots our soul from the inside out without a shepherd telling us what to do, guiding us. We're prone to being helpless, hopelessly stuck in the decisions that we've made and have happened to us without a shepherd guiding us out of that. So we have a shepherd that surveys what's going on. We have a Jesus who knows what's going on with the physical, with the emotional, and most importantly, 
and what he draws the most attention to, the spiritual. And when he sees these crowds with these kinds of issues, it says, compassion wells up in him. Verse 9, verse 30, chapter 36. That's right, verse 9, chapter, <laughs> chapter 9, verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. I've always loved the word compassion in the, in the Greek not because some Bible class gave me a great chance to speak Greek, because I get to introduce you to a little bit of anatomy and physiology. It's one of the few times when an anatomical term really takes over, because the original word is splanknizomai, splanknik. And you say, have you ever heard someone say, something just hit a nerve? We know what that means. It kind of fires up something in you zaps you. Well, guess what? If I were to fire up your splanchnic nerves, you know what would get fired up? How about just a few things? Your liver, your kidneys, your bladder, your stomach, your small intestine, your large intestine. Your splanchnic nerves innervate all of those innards like that. And so it's not surprising that many a commentator has said Jesus had a gut reaction when he saw the crowds. He had a gut reaction of compassion. It wasn't some little cerebral thought. It wasn't something just kind of touched the heart a little bit. It really grabbed him and, 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 and got to him at a deep level. Truly a gut reaction is the way that that word compassion meant is, is it's described. And having not only an ability to assess the crowds, an ability to be motivated by his compassion, we see he can do something about it. There's, there's times you see an issue, but you're just helpless. You're powerless. You can't do anything about it. But Jesus could. Look what it says. Jesus went throughout all these cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel, and healing every disease and every affliction. I so appreciate that the, the breadth of what we learn about what Jesus can fix and what he did fix in those, in those days in which he walked this earth. Not just the physical issues of diseases, but you can see, and it's listed every time Jesus is walking around in different Gospels, it says he, did, he, he healed diseases and afflictions. You know what diseases are, the physical issues we have, but, but I so appreciate it, it also says he, he could heal their afflictions. It means their weaknesses, their infirmities. It even says their softness, those, those places that have been wounded that go beyond the physical, the emotional tolls, the, the weaknesses in our spirits and our confidence, whatever it might be, Jesus healed far more than just leprosy and some palsy and, and, and some skin things. He healed at such a deep level. That's what Jesus can do, and that's what this crowd got a glimpse of. I have to wonder if they're a little bit like the Uber driver Sandy and I had in Savannah a couple months ago. Got off the plane there, never been to Savannah, and this fellow had been there, I think he said, 25 years, and he loved living in the Savannah area. 
as we're heading from the airport down to where we were staying, he would just point out a few things. Point out something over here, tell us a little bit about what, what we might see downtown. We were there for a few days. And then there'd be a pause. He wasn't overly talkative. But out of the blue, maybe a minute after he hadn't said anything and we're driving, he'd just say, oh, yeah. <laughs> well, then he'd tell us a little bit more. Make some more observations about just what was happening in this great town, things we should do. And then we started waiting for it, Dan. We were looking at each other. It's coming. Oh, yeah. I just have to wonder if Jesus' disciples were doing that just on a regular basis in these days. Just seeing the healings. Seeing the excitement, not just on someone's face who had been healed, but on their family. Oh, what a marvelous thing they were taking in as these crowds followed Jesus and he solo got the job done. Got it done. Healing and lifting spirits and the countenance of those that needed healings. But solo is not how Jesus chooses to work. From, from this point, it becomes so very clear that Matthew is intent on showing us how Jesus is going to choose to work. Quite honestly, from here on out, he is not going to go solo. He might go solo to the cross. No question about that. Not trying to confuse any theology there. But when it comes to his ministry to the world, he doesn't go solo. He begins here and now choosing a team that he'll at first call his disciples, he'll then call his apostles, and then he'll call it all of us. And that's what I want to look at. Because indeed, you are how Jesus works. That's the message of the rest of what we're going to see here today. Let's see what that happened, how that happens. I want to read verses 37 and 38 again. Thank you, Shadrach, for reading them earlier. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And we're going to begin to see that though in other places, when the disciples are first named, Matthew chooses to insert it here. It's very likely that, that they had already kind of come together. Mark has it quite a bit earlier in his gospel. But it seems that Matthew wants to insert it right after Jesus is doing great things, in a sense solo with the disciples looking on. But, but without any obvious provocation, he says, we need to pray, you need to pray, that the, the laborers would be raised up. And now we decide, he decides who are going to be the very first of those laborers. And as he names these 12 apostles. Let me read their names. It says in chapter 10, And he called to him to his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease, every affliction. And the name of the 12 apostles... Remember, he's called them disciples in verse 1. Now he's actually saying right here, the name of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, 
and John his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. There's four different times that the apostles are listed here. Mark lists them, Luke lists them, and then the first chapter at the beginning of Acts. And there's some things I think we can learn, some points in just even this list, some observations. One is simply this, Peter is always named first, Matthew specifically saying first Peter, first Simon who is called Peter. But it's always the case in these lists that Judas is named last, except the last time in Acts when he's not named at all, just 11 are named. He's not even anymore on the list. It's really a warning to anybody who is playing the part of a Jesus follower, but never truly follows him. In the end, they are not on the list of Jesus' disciples. There's a warning there. But I think perhaps what jumps out to me and especially in this context of Jesus beginning to, to demonstrate he is going to want all of us to participate in his going out and his ministry to the whole world is how ordinary they are. I don't mean that they're below average. I'm not trying to diss on the disciples, but they're fairly ordinary from what we can see. I mean, none of them, the best we can tell, tout a, a, a pedigree of education. We don't know anything that would suggest that they had fame or, or beauty or just remarkable intelligence, things that you might think would be things that would, would cause Jesus to choose them. We're not aware of any of them having any significant or extraordinary wealth not aware of any of them having any significant theological training. And, of course, there was training there with rabbis and things. None of them were theologically trained. <clears throat> we're not aware of any of them having strong family connections, just the kinds of things that you might suspect would be in most lists if people were choosing a group to change the world. Some of them really are quite unknown, barely mentioned. I mean, if we paused here for five minutes and I said, pull out a pen, write down Bartholomew, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and just write a little bit about them, you know, what you remember. I'd have to start by saying, do you know how to spell Bartholomew? Does Thaddeus have one D or two? We know virtually nothing about them other than they were one of Jesus' 12 disciples. We do see, though, that there are some early patterns that emerge. That Jesus, even in his earliest list, has a way of using very different people. And he has a way of often using families. Different people. Matthew is, is, is writing this, so he chooses to remind us that he's a tax collector. He doesn't say that to brag, but to show that that. Jesus even uses tax collectors. So he adds that to his name. Matthew the tax collector. Someone that, that was despised in Jewish society because of an allegiance or at least a dependence on Rome, the oppressors of that day. Matthew the tax collector listed almost right next to 
Simon the Zealot. The zealots in this day were people who were the opposite of pro-Rome. They were revolutionaries. They were seeking to overthrow the government, overthrow Rome. And here in Jesus' list, very different people, very different allegiances in terms of their choices. We also see that, that Jesus has a way of often using people that are not just different, but sometimes ones that come from the same womb. Two sets of brothers, Peter and Andrew and James and John. And it has been the case since the very beginning how often Jesus loves to use families, loves to see great ministry carried out within the context of a family. It's not just uh, loyal and loving towards one another, but whose greatest priority is the Lord Jesus that they have in common. I didn't quite honestly remember how much that we can see that even when it comes to James and John, how much really their, their parents were used as well. You know, when, it's when, when Jesus calls James and John in another place over in, in, uh, in Luke, it points out that, that they were with their father, Zebedee, in the boat, and Zebedee's there with hired men. And Jesus calls, and they, they leave their father in the boat with the hired men in the fishing boat. A father that clearly had some support for what they were doing. But maybe even more so was their mother. If you piece together some later accounts in Matthew, as well as, as uh, looking over at Mark, it's apparent that it's their mother, James and John's mother, who was there as one of the women supporting Jesus financially in his ministry, at the cross, and very likely was Salome, the, the mother of James and John, who is there on Easter morning. So this list does remind us of patterns that from the very start are important to see how Jesus uses very different people and also uses families is just from the start. But I do want to point out to you in verses 1 and 2 what we see is a principle that goes on to today, and that is that Jesus interchangeably from this early place begins to not only call them disciples but apostles. It says it's in, verse, in chapter 10, verse 1, and he called to him his 12 disciples, and then in verse 2, the names of the 12 apostles. You and I are not disciples with a capital D. We're not one of the 12. Not one of those original apostles with a capital A. But we're disciples and we're apostles nonetheless. We are followers and we are sent out. From the start, that was Jesus' intention. That someone who follows the Lord Jesus is also someone who is sent out on mission. Disciples is, to be a disciple is to be an apostle with that idea of following leads to being sent out. That is how Jesus works. We see how he works in this last section of 10 verses, verses 5 down to 15. I, I found this, quite honestly, a little challenging section to see what can we learn from it. Because before I read it, let me just preface, it's, it's clear that this is not going to be a passage that we listen to all of how Jesus sends them out and says, well, that's the way it has to be done. 
I say that not on my authority, but because when Jesus sends them out another time, some months, maybe a year later, he tells them and gives them different instructions of some of the details. So let's look at it and just make sure that we're, we're wrestling with what can we take away from this that are principles for the long term and what maybe is not. Let me read verses 5 to 10. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles. Enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, meaning don't carry around money with you. No bag for your journey. Don't take two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. There's a lot in there, but let me point out that as, as we look at this, I really think this begins to show us how God's plan, how Jesus' plan is going to steadily reach the whole world. But, but it's important that we see here that, that there's some things that will not be normative, things that we don't need to look at and say, well, that's the way it needs to be done. Let me point out maybe some of the obvious one is that it first says, go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans. This is almost kind of the end of the line where there's a particular, really intense focus on reaching Israel, the Jewish people. Because by the end of Matthew 28, Jesus himself will instruct, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. So Jesus has had a plan that had this focus the last 2,000 years. Abraham lived about 2,000 B.C. And so for two millenniums, that's as long before Jesus as we are after Jesus, there has been a particular focus on the Jewish people. But we're going to see that that, that is about to change. We're also going to see that, that Jesus desires a dependence on him in our going. And sometimes that dependence might be that he asks us to travel quite lean. He, he almost sends us out seemingly unequipped, unprepared. And other times he will send us out with more provision. Let me just point out that, that he says in here to, to not carry a second tunic. They're not supposed to walk in their, you know, just the gym shorts as they went from town to town or something like that. But it was the second tunic. It was don't have a, a spare. Don't carry extra money in your belts hidden away in case you get into trouble. Don't carry a, a knapsack, something that just has extra provisions. So you might have some food or extra food along the way. Jesus will even ask them in Luke 22, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? He asked his disciples. They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack. So he's going to change how he sends them out just at a, at a, at a future journey. 
but he wanted them to see that their dependence should be on him. I suppose that looks differently in our lives depending on our station in life, maybe even our circumstances. We can look back and see times in which we perhaps were particularly prepared and had provisions, and other times it seems that Jesus sent us into a situation or to even a, a, a time in life where we were on mission for him but felt very ill-equipped and had to lean harder into him. I think perhaps it's important to just make sure that, that as we study this, we make sure that we take away what, what is enduring, but also be careful to, to not put too much into how lean we're supposed to be. Even Spurgeon said it this way, there's different modes of procedure to be adopted at different times. And then he somewhat sarcastically says, oh, that some of our spiritual brethren would have a little common sense. I guess even in his day, 150 years ago, there was people that wanted to take a verse like these or a passage like this and say, you're not supposed to carry any money when you're on mission for Jesus. That's not, it seems, the point. The point, though, is to go in with a mindset of dependence on him and also perhaps an allowance for how that might look differently at different times when he sends us out. I think maybe the second part is what I want to emphasize even a little more. Let me begin in verse 11. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Here's where Jesus makes it clear that you are to bring peace to some people and you will see that there is judgment that will come to others. We're to offer peace indiscriminately as we travel this, this journey of life. Uh, some of it was just even the common greeting of, in, a, in a culture that was more prone to hospitality than, than we probably are as cultures today. They could show up and stay with someone and just what would seem to us to be very bold and almost obnoxious was just part of culture to host people. And, and you would enter a home and you would pray almost a blessing, speak peace to that home, offer a, a peaceful blessing as you entered it. And the qualification of whether you would have your peace remain on that home, be an agent of God to bring peace or to retract that, was not how good the food was. It wasn't how, how nice the pillows were on the guest room. It wasn't, wasn't how nice, you know, they, they treated you in those kinds of hospitality ways. But in this case whether they received you as one sent from the Lord and whether they listened to the gospel you brought. That's what it says. If the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, 
And that was the qualification of whether you left and, and allowed, in a sense, judgment to come to that home or whether if they received you and listened to the gospel words you allowed or an agent of peace coming to that home. It is such a warning that I see in this last verse of it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. A town that doesn't receive you as from the Lord and doesn't listen to the gospel message. It is a significant warning. I want you to think maybe of just a town that you would just think would be almost idyllic. Almost a town where, where there's just such, you just want to be there. Maybe it's a quaint town in New England. Maybe it's, a, it's a, just a nice suburb in the, in the Bible Belt. Maybe it's one of our great Colorado mountain towns. But imagine a place that you would just, just so much want to be on vacation. Or just say, maybe I'd want to retire there. But imagine that town as, as being a place that, that if it would be described as a place that rejected the gospel, as a, as a whole just pushed out Jesus' outreach, his, 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 his message of salvation to them. It doesn't matter how pretty the church steeples are, how, how clean the parks are, how friendly the people are as you walk in their downtown. That place is worse off, according to Jesus, than the wickedness, the immorality of Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Because, at least in this case, and as so often the case in our world today, people have access to a clear presentation of the gospel message, and they are rejecting it. That is where the judgment comes. It does remind me to just have to say to someone, is that could it ever be more true than someone who has sat in a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching, gospel-affirming church week after week, maybe year after year, and has still not embraced, not listened at a heart level to the gospel message, not received Jesus as Savior, not fallen on him, and his work on the cross for salvation. It's a harsh message. It's a biblical message, though, that that person could well be, be, be lopped in with those who are worse off than Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, I want to end with this thought and circle back to maybe even where I began, that, that we began with Jesus in a sense, going solo and choosing to step away from a solo ministry and involving his disciples and, in time, his future disciples and sent ones. That's you and me. You know, as I think about in music particularly, a great solo artist at the height of their fame doesn't join a band. They, they, they do the opposite. They, they kind of come up maybe in a band, and if, if they're the lead voice or the lead, more, more famous musician, it, the natural course is they break off and become a solo artist and ride that fame as long as they can. They don't become famous and then say, well, maybe I'll get a, a band to join, so I'm just one of the gang. 
It is interesting that Jesus, at what might seem to be with the crowds following him, at a particular place of fame and notoriety, uses that as an opportunity to say, pray for labors, and chooses his disciples and begins to set a course for what he will do from then until he returns. That is to look out and say, you are how he works. A man named Richard Halverson was a pastor in the Washington, D.C. area for some years. He ended up being the Senate chaplain in the 80s and into the mid-90s. Sometime along the way, when he was uh, regularly preaching, he wrote out his own benediction that I think so aptly summarizes the kinds of sentiments that this passage is about. This passage that is about Jesus saying he is sending on mission all of us day after day. If we're his followers, we are also his sent ones. Halverson would speak this benediction at the end after praying at any service that he was leading. He, he cared so much about reminding people of, of their role in Jesus' work that, that he actually recorded it and at his funeral in 1995 spoke the words to conclude the service. The words are these, you go nowhere by accident. Wherever you go, God is sending you. Wherever you are, God has put you there. He has a purpose in your being there. Christ who indwells you has something he wants to do through you where you are. Believe this and go in his grace and love and power. Halverson would speak that to his church family, to those after preaching time after time. And so I want to end today with a prayer and then praying that benediction for you as well because it is so consistent with what Jesus would have us remember. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that our Jesus is so awesomely capable of loving this world and ministering to this world as he did those years ago. But for reasons that quite honestly escape our feeble minds, he has involved us. And I pray that we would leave this place with that reminder that if we're not right with Jesus, we would get right with him. And if we know Jesus as our Savior, as so many of us do, we would be reminded that you are sending us out, even this very week, into our world to be agents of your peace, agents of your healing, agents of speaking the good news of Jesus wherever we go. And so, Father, we thank you for these words that a dear brother who's in your presence now said some time ago. And I say this over, my dear brothers and sisters, this day, reminding them that they go nowhere by accident. That wherever they go, my friends, God is sending you. Wherever you are, God has put you there. Your Jesus has a purpose in your being there. And that Jesus who indwells you has something he wants to do through you, where you are. Believe this, my friends, and go in his grace 
and his love and his power.